Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Shu Mo, and I am a host for the New Books Network. Today, I have the honor to have with me Professor John Waterbury. Dr. John Waterbury is currently the Global Professor of Political Science in New York University, Abu Dhabi, and was president of the American University of Beirut from 1998 to 2008. He is the former professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs for nearly 20 years. He has contributed to the study of the political economy of the developing world, especially the Middle East and North Africa. Welcome to the show, Dr. Waterbury. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Your book is not only an exposition of the process of policymaking higher education in the Arab world, but it also gives reform policy recommendations. Can you share with us what led you to write this book? I've spent all of my adult life in higher education, but like many professors, I never really studied the system in which I was drawing my livelihood and devoting my life. It certainly would seem obvious that when I became president of the American University of Beirut in Lebanon, I was put in a position where all these questions about higher education weren't theoretical. They were what informed my day-to-day existence as an administrator trying to figure out how to make the large and complex entity that I was directing work better and achieve certain goals. And that raised the general problem of the policy environment in which my university and all universities in Lebanon existed. As you know, I had spent a lot of time in Egypt before I went to Lebanon, and I was very familiar with Egypt's higher education system and had accepted the conventional wisdom that it had in major ways failed, that it was in crisis, that it was not able to achieve the goals it set for itself. And that had become abundantly clear in 2011 during the Arab uprisings, and particularly the so-called Tahrir uprisings in Cairo, which many people could, and I think rightly did, attribute to a failure of the educational system. Perhaps we'll discuss that in greater depth as we move along. But those were the questions that informed me as I decided to launch this study. It was also the result of a general perception that was widespread that close observers, many Arabs themselves, many Egyptians, many Lebanese, felt that their higher education systems had failed badly and that they were in crisis. 
The word crisis was constantly used to describe higher education. The higher education crisis, along with the jobs crisis, seemed to define the Middle East. And again, it all came home to roost in 2011 with the uprisings in Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, Syria, Sudan, to a certain extent. So the Arab uprisings seemed to epitomize this notion of crisis in higher education and in the provision of employment for young people. So I wanted to have a better understanding of the policy environment that could explain this crisis. But please know that I accepted that there was a crisis. And as my research proceeded, I began to back away from that. I'm not sure there was or even is a crisis. And I had to rephrase some of the initial questions to take into consideration this realization that slowly dawned on me as I proceeded in my research. Before we dive to the pathologies of the higher educational crisis, could you share with us how did your previous research into state-owned enterprises, particularly around issues of accountability, inform your research in higher education? That's a very good question. It was a surprise to me that there were so many parallels in looking at higher education that I had already encountered when I was studying public enterprise in four countries, as I guess you know, uh, India, Turkey, Mexico, and Egypt. Missions Impossible reflects that earlier research is that public enterprises were called upon to fulfill many missions. A lot of the missions they were asked to fulfill were contradictory, that you couldn't have one without the other, or you couldn't have both together. You had to generate employment lead scientific research, strengthen national defense, promote regional development, so on and so forth. These missions were contradictory to the extent that most public enterprises I studied could not, in any sense, generate profits or generate a surplus for the state. And in the Middle East, you have to always leave aside the oil and gas sector, which was a generator of an enormous amount of surplus. But the circumstances of the gas and oil sector are such that they don't hold a lot of lessons for the rest of the economy. So when you're looking at agriculture and industry and even the service sector, uh, the, the impact of these multiple missions on the public sector enterprises was quite dire. You know, how do you run a bus line profitably and still provide service to most of your citizens? How do you run your educational system, your health system? So the costs are reasonable, but the quality of service is good. My conclusion was you can't do this. These missions are mutually incompatible. So I found the same thing in higher education. That led to the title of the book, Missions Impossible, because higher education is called upon in the Middle East, public higher education is called upon in the Middle East to fulfill many different missions, and these missions are not always compatible. They fight with one another. So you're trying to educate the greatest number of students at the lowest cost and still maintain a position in scientific research and produce graduates who are fit for employment in the private sector and in leading technology sectors. And my argument in Missions Impossible is you can't achieve all of these things. And I, I talked about something that others have called the trilemma. And the trilemma in higher education in the Middle East 
is to educate the greatest number of students at the lowest cost while maintaining high quality. And that's impossible. You can have two of you can have two of the three, but you can't have all three together. You have to sacrifice one. And in the Arab world and the Middle East in general, what has been sacrificed is quality. The numbers have been quite impressive over the years. So the number of students going through higher education is really quite quite laudable. The Middle East should be proud of itself for the numbers that they've been able to educate. And they've been able to do so at a reasonable cost, not at a low cost. Uh, in terms of per capita outlays and government expenditures, the Middle East spends rather high on the comparative um, measurements. It invests a lot in education, but it's still been a reasonable cost. But what's been sacrificed is quality. And that has had a big impact on the employability of graduates and where they can try to recoup the cost of their education. What strikes me from your research, if I am remembering correctly, is that there is a negative correlation between the prevalence of education and employment rate. You also quoted several times King Dix of Morocco, who said most public universities have been factories for the bureaucrats, if not for the unemployed. So how is university education tied up with rent-seeking behavior and crony capitalism? First of all, you summarized the, the problem quite well, but the link there is in the private university sector itself. And if I can try to summarize that briefly, here's how it would go. In the 1970s, uh, many Arab countries went through a kind of economic and fiscal crisis where their public finances came under tremendous pressure and where several countries had to enter into understandings with the International Monetary Fund to reduce expenditures, cut subsidies, and eat into something that was called the social contract between political leaders and their populations. These fiscal crises and economic crises of the 1970s came to a point where Arab governments felt they could no longer fund their public higher education systems adequately. So they all introduced legal reforms that made it possible for the private sector to offer higher education, to found universities and tertiary institutions. That was the transition that began in the 1980s, but it really took off in the 1990s. And this is where the cronyism came in, because like so much else in the Middle East, it wasn't a clean process to establish a university. You had to have the support of the highest political leadership to do so. And that political support was usually reserved for cronies, for buddies, uh, who were then allowed to establish private for-profit uh, institutions that could generate revenue and even pay off the shareholders if there were any. They were privately held and usually narrow, but they generated high revenues. In Jordan, private institutions were founded that targeted Saudi Arabian students who had not been admitted to their public universities, who had the wherewithal to pay for their higher education. A certain number of private Jordanian universities came on stream that could then absorb the Saudi students who had been denied access to their own public education in Saudi Arabia. 
So this became fairly common throughout the Middle East. It's where we got a kind of crony sector in private education at the university level. And what is it about the Arab educational studies that can inform scholars who are studying other regions? And is there something unique about this challenge of unusual proportions? That's a big question. Analysts of the Middle East have long identified Arab exceptionalism. Doesn't look so exceptional now, but it seemed to be exceptional at a certain point in time. And it sort of goes like this. Average per capita income in the Arab world had risen to levels where there was a substantial middle class in income terms. Democratic theory predicted that if you had a critical mass of middle-income citizens, you would generate a demand and actually have a transition towards more democratic forms of government. And yet in the Middle East, even as incomes rose and a middle-class grew, there was no transition to democracy. The Middle East remained resolutely autocratic with the possible exception of Lebanon, which periodically had a fairly vibrant democratic system. But if you leave beside Lebanon, there were no functioning democracies in the Middle East. That led to this term, Middle East exceptionalism. Why was it that the rising incomes, rising literacy, rising rates of urbanization did not lead to some kind of democratic transition? There was huge speculation as to why this was so. And for a brief moment in 2011, there was a feeling that maybe the puzzle was going to resolve itself with a transition in many Arab countries to more democratic forms. But as the Arab uprisings lost steam, uh, we reverted once again to Arab exceptionalism with strong autocracies just about everywhere. Added to that, failed states that couldn't even function very effectively as political entities. I'm thinking there of Syria, which was thrown into civil war, Yemen, likewise, and Iraq, which was essentially under U.S. occupation at one point. So states that could not function as states in control of their national territory and able to make policies that could apply throughout the country. So in addition to the failure of democratic transitions, we had failed states that couldn't really install any kind of political regime that was viable. This was the kind of the macro conundrum that many people have associated with the Middle East. Now, where education comes into this picture is in terms of job markets and employment, along with the so-called exceptionalism of the Arab world, is another facet of that exceptionalism, which is the extraordinarily high rates of educated youth unemployment. They have traditionally, over decades, been the highest in the world. There's no other region where there are such high rates of youth unemployment and particularly educated youth unemployment as we have found in the Middle East. Most of the time, unemployment is a kind of contextual or transitory phase representing a certain moment in the economic life of a country. But in the Middle East, it's been a steady feature for 30 or 40 years. And it threatens the political establishments in many countries, again, as we saw in 2011. These high rates of unemployment, of educated youth, are political dynamite. These are young people who may not be married, who have very few responsibilities, but they have very high aspirations. 
And they are the ones who have said that the educational system has not prepared them for life as independent citizens and life as those contributing to the local economy and to strengthening their countries. And they're angry and they're calling for justice and calling for more open and accountable systems. So the educational crisis feeds into this larger political crisis that we have called Arab exceptionalism. Yeah, it seems that Arab exceptionalism, the awareness of which runs throughout your book, and here I quote, it is the role of universities as theatrical stages and political testing grounds, end of quote. Can you talk more about the pernicious impact of big P politics on institutions of higher learning in the Arab world, and how does it morph from small P to big P. Right. Maybe I should explain a little bit about small and big. I think every educational system has what I would call small politics sides to it. We can see it in the United States in just about everywhere now, where public universities, which have a significant representation from the political forces in their states, are interfering in university business from appointing presidents to trying to shape university policy, and they've become very invasive and interfering. This is what I would call small p, trying to influence who will be the next president of the University of Michigan or whatever in the United States. And so we're, we're familiar with that. And politicians may make promises about what will be taught at the universities or what will not be taught, like a critical race theory a hot political potato right at the moment in the United States. That's pretty common. I think every system has a lot of small p political lesions and interference in university affairs. But in the Middle East, what I argue is that there's big P, big politics. And what I mean by that is the leaders of many Middle Eastern countries think their very survival can be affected by what goes on in higher education. Now, there are fears about the impact of higher education is, is not limited to higher education itself. Some autocrats in the Arab world are worried by all aspects of civil society, professional associations, labor unions, university, and the informal sector, which may account for something like 40% of their economies. That is the sector of the economy that's not officially registered or paying taxes. The autocrats are fearful of all of these sectors, not just higher education, but they are worried about higher education. So they sacrifice quality of education to maximize political control. And this is what I call big P. It's where you have the intelligence services located on campus and following every aspect of daily life in the university where all senior officials from presidents to deans to vice presidents have to be politically cleared and may officially be the product of a nomination and appointment process that goes right to the head of state. There is no trust between political leaders and universities. There is a lot of antagonism and a lot of deals being made, but it's a system that does not lead to high quality in educational products. The experience of the deep state is felt throughout the university system. I'm wondering how, if that's related also to the lack of intro-Arab 
university collaboration that you have also talked about. You mentioned about the lack of trust. Could you speak more about the sources of the lack of trust, how it's related to autocratic rule? Yeah, and I, I think it's fairly standard. Universities, by their very nature, have their fingers on a lot of the major issues facing any nation, because this is where future leadership is going to be trained, where technocracies are trained. You just take a field like the military and national defense and strategic issues. A lot of the technological advances in these areas are going to be made with the support of or even inside of the universities. So you have students and faculty who are working on crucial issues of national survival, economics, uh, health research, strategic research, and the like. So they have a peculiarly important role in determining the future of the nation. And if they're not on the side of the leadership, they can begin to undermine the leadership by underperforming or by even sabotaging a certain number of national goals and priorities. So this is what defines a kind of relationship of distrust between political leadership and the universities. And I think it's it's one that uh, is fairly common in many societies, not just in the Middle East. The universities have been often pride themselves on speaking truth to power. The faculty often see themselves as having a role in voicing the concerns and the preferences of the bulk of their citizens, taking leadership roles in political opposition. And this is what worries political leadership in the Middle East, that universities may become the foyer the home of systematic resistance to the political authorities that are in control. So in the West, university autonomy and shared governance are usually held up in sanctity as sacred. In your book, you mentioned that university autonomy in the Arab world is enshrined in law, while also regarded as a potential existential threat. What does that mean? Yeah, it's a nice question. I think it's important to keep in mind. The, the constitutions and legal frameworks of many Arab countries takes for granted the notion that the university as a legal entity is the meaningful unit of analysis, is the meaningful uh, decision-making center in higher education policy, that university leadership has the autonomy to make decisions that affect the future of the university. And this is often enshrined even in constitutions, which guarantee the autonomy of the university as a decision-making entity. In fact, in practice, it seldom works out that way. As I indicated a little earlier, there's a whole range of decisions from appointing senior leadership to determining salary levels, for instance, which go according to civil service rules that are not within the purview of university leadership. They don't have control over their finances. They really don't have control over the promotion and recruiting process of faculty. They do not have control over who is admitted to their university, even how many students are admitted. These are all undertaken by entities that are above the universities, often embodied in things called the Supreme Council of Universities for a given country. Egypt is a notable example of this where critical decisions affecting each university are taken and are binding. 
So the university as an autonomous decision-making unit is something of a myth of the Middle East. It may be, and I think since I finished the book, there have been significant changes taking place in the Arab world, which indicate that there is a movement towards more effective autonomy at the university level. This may again reflect the notion that there's a deep crisis that is not being addressed by the current command and control systems of the region. And that university leadership must have greater latitude to make to make important decisions affecting the future of the university. And that university leadership must be empowered to really govern and set the financial terms, the economic terms of higher education and their institutions. I'm not sure how far this is going to go because it's going to break down some of the links of the big P political controls that I was just talking about, but it does seem to be underway. It's going to be fascinating to see how it's absorbed into various higher education systems. But this is the direction they're moving. Greater autonomy for universities and greater autonomy for university leadership. The term, and this going back to governance in the public sector, the term is aligning responsibilities with capabilities. They're totally disaligned now because the university has so little control over the major levers of power that determine its future. But that may be changing to more effective autonomy. Final thing I would say on this point is to go back to the private sector and private sector education, because the move towards greater autonomy, I think, is partially coming from the influence of the private institutions that were founded in the 1980s and 1990s. Then you have a lot of effective autonomy. Their direct oversight may be in the hands of a board. In the United States, we would call it a board of trustees. It would be a conseil in France. But this is an independent board, which is responsible for the health and welfare of the university and is interval mainly to itself with some oversight from ministries of education and Supreme Councils. But I think what may we may see is that public institutions are going to demand the same level of autonomy that's being granted to private institutions. Why shouldn't the University of Cairo have the same autonomy as the American University of Cairo, one being a private institution with an independent board, and the other being very much under the guidance, if not under the thumb of the Supreme Council of the Universities in Egypt? I think there's going to be pressure coming from the public sector saying, treat us as you treat the private sector, give us the same range of authorities and responsibilities and align our authorities and responsibilities better than they are now, where we have to provide quality, but you don't give us the wherewithal to do so. I think we may be on the verge of some very significant transformations in Arab higher education. But I'm not at all sure that they are going to have the impact that one might want. I just conclude this with one observation. Autonomy is meaningful mainly in a competitive environment where one university is trying to distinguish itself from all the rest in some ways. It may be that it has a particular educational product like MIT uh, is so powerful in the STEM disciplines and uh, Johns Hopkins in medicine 
It's kind of part of their brand, and they use it to compete with one another for resources, for top students, and for top faculty. So as you move towards greater autonomy, I think we're going to see greater competition among institutions of higher learning. And I'm not sure that's going to be such a great outcome because what it means is you're going to be competing for the best and the brightest students and also the best and the brightest faculty to teach those students. Unfortunately, the students who do the best on standardized testing tend to come from the established classes of their societies. They're the ones that have privilege, go to the best secondary schools and high schools, uh, have the preparation that allows them to go into engineering and medicine as opposed to literature and law, for instance. So greater competition and established brand name may reinforce social inequities in a number of Arab societies, which the old command and control systems had mitigated to a certain extent. I think it was part of their unrecognized success that they, in fact, offered higher education to such a broad swath of their societies. Yeah. Instead of education to level the playing field, it reinforces social inequality. On the topic of transformation, you talked about three kinds of innovation, and you paid particular attention to disruptive innovation. That can pose real threat to the existing business as usual, as you call it, BAU. So what kinds of education outside of STEM areas that you believe can enable the development of civil society in the Arab world without triggering fear from central authorities? That's a great question. And what I'm going to say is generalizable to many societies, not just in the Middle East. What we find just about everywhere is that after the first year of university, there's a very high dropout rate among registered students. They may get through the first year, but then they find that either they're facing financial difficulties to go on to the second year, or they don't have the language competency to begin to move into more sophisticated areas of study in the STEM areas in particular, where knowing a Western language may be critical and they can't compete with their better off rivals. So they begin to confront all sorts of difficulties and drop out. This happens in highly advanced societies like the United States, where something like 60% of students who register for higher education do not go forward to complete their degrees. So from a political point of view, these are students who have already demonstrated their desire to have higher education. They're qualified to a certain extent, otherwise they wouldn't have been admitted to university in the first place. There's no reason to believe that they want higher education any less after they've dropped out. They may want it even more, and they become this huge reserve market for higher education. Uh, think of 60% of all students who go through U.S. higher education becoming a new market for perhaps a new form of higher education. What might that look like? Well, there's all sorts of things. There's this remote learning of various kinds, which is growing by leaps and bounds, blended learning, et cetera. But one that has attracted a good deal of attention is competency-based education, which allows you to try to achieve a certain level of competency in a given subject area, basically on your own time. 
it can take as long as you need or as short as you're as you're willing. Uh, but there's there's not a kind of four year program or three year program with credit hours and examinations at the end of the semester. When you feel ready to be examined to demonstrate your competency, you say I'm ready, and then you go through the testing and evaluation process to certify that you have achieved a certain level of competency in a certain area. This could be very attractive for those people who have dropped out of university, have a better idea where they want to go than they had when they first entered the university and were obliged to drop out. And they can do it at their own pace, maybe while working uh, part-time or even full-time, and so that there's no time horizon that says, Beyond this date, you can no longer be a student here, you can no longer be a candidate for our certificate or diploma. So there are many ways in which disruptive innovations may occur. And I think there's a huge market out there to provide the dropouts with an alternative to just going back to their high school degree and hoping that that will be enough for them to earn an adequate living as adults and parents with big responsibilities. But to follow up on that, competency-based learning also depend on the economic market to be also expanding, providing enough job opportunities for it to work? Yes, it does. And curiously, I think now in our post-COVID phase, we're seeing that there's huge demand for certain kinds of competencies which aren't being met uh, either by the educational system or by the existing workforce. We were talking earlier about markets and the Washington consensus. Labor markets will give you signals, if you listen closely enough, as to what is needed in certain areas. And competency-based education could be very agile in providing that kind of supply of labor because it's the students themselves who are saying, you know, if only I had a certificate in teaching handicapped uh, children something. I would have a very solid job in the area in which I am living because I know those jobs exist and they're not being filled right now. So healthcare, elder care, all sorts of skilled service jobs, which are going unfilled, uh, could be filled if you had a more flexible system to produce the kinds of skills that are needed in, in the market. But you got to be able to hear the market signals. And I think in the United States today, we're hearing them loud and clear. There are huge labor shortages in several key areas, and the current educational system isn't doing a great job in filling them. So you get big enterprises like Amazon who do a lot of their own education to make sure that they have a supply of the people they need for expanding business. But there's no reason why other independent providers couldn't do the same. Circling back to the misalignment between what the universities produced and what the market needs, you highlighted a very interesting opportunity in combating youth employment in the Arab world, which is military service for skills upgrade. Can you tell more about that? Sure. I think virtually every Middle Eastern country, every Arab country has compulsory military service. So it's not like the United States, which is essentially a volunteer service and which accommodates a rather small segment of the eligible population. And in the Middle East, every young man, not every young woman, unfortunately, but every young man 
if they're physically capable, has to undergo military training and military service for a year or two years. We know from other societies, here I would cite Israel in the region, but it's not a model that many Arabs want to follow, show what can be done if you use those two years to provide skills to a set of young people who will then enter the job market when they finish their military service. It's a wasted opportunity in most of the Middle East. There's not been a major effort to make the military experience one of preparation for the next phase in the lives of the young soldiers, but it seems to me one that should be explored because I don't think universal military service is going to disappear anytime soon in the Middle East, and it does represent a big opportunity to build skills and point people in productive directions for the rest of their lives. I cannot help but observe the optimism you have mixed with realism. Here is my last question. Are there any other issues that you wish you had addressed in the book since its publication? Yeah, as I say, the rise of private education is going to be a real game changer in the Middle East. Again, I think it will come in two ways. One is the private institutions themselves, to the extent they're successful, are going to become uh, forces for change inside their societies. The second way is that the public institutions, which are the established and highly respected institutions in their countries, will demand the same kind of privileges and latitudes that the private institutions have. So you'll have really two impetuses for major change coming out of higher education, new private universities as entities on their own and the impact of public universities seeking a level playing field uh, with the private sector. So in this sense, the private sector becomes the disruptor. It may lead to a number of practices that uh, will add up to significant structural change in higher education. But I have to put a footnote to this, which I've already mentioned. This may have some negative consequences on social equity because I think it may cater to reinforcing the privileges of the already privileged in uh, many Middle Eastern societies. Yes, and it's difficult to imagine these new private partnerships not to become part of the crony networks. Well, they're certainly part of the crony networks now. There's some pretty egregious examples, but I, I won't mention them. I won't cite them by name. But yeah, there, there's a lot of cronyism. It is a growth industry. And I think a number of investors like it because it has all of the cachet of higher education, which is highly respected in most societies. And it's a little bit different than providing slaughtered poultry or motels, high-rise apartment buildings, or even getting a contract from the military to develop some kind of product. It's got a kind of legitimacy to it that the cronies like. And they can have their own universities. I mean, what more could you want? Thank you so, so much for this wonderful opportunity to, to interview you. Thank you. Enjoyed it. <laughs>